seated. And if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. And uh, if you do not have your Bible, just slip up your hand. We've got plenty here, and I'll make sure that uh, one of our folks uh, provides you with one. Acts chapter 10. Words will be up on the screen as well. And we're going to read verses 1 through 36. Hear the word of God this morning. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers... And your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, was, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, He went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Let's pray. Father God, this is one of the most important chapters in the New Testament and the Bible. And God, I pray this morning that you would help us to fully grasp the weight of what the Spirit is saying through Acts chapter 10 this morning. It has relevance to every single person in this room regardless of their race, regardless of age, ethnic background, spiritual condition, what is talked about in this passage is of supreme importance to us all. So I pray that you would help us to hear what the Spirit is saying this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Deemer. You know, the um, Iron Curtain has been down for many years now. Um, for those in here who don't know what the Iron Curtain is, children who don't understand what the Iron Curtain is, it was... A division between communist Eastern Europe and democratic or free Western Europe. You remember last week I used as an illustration on the screen the, the, the Berlin Wall. Well, the Iron Curtain was this, some places, a very physical thing that separated free Europe from Europe that was dominated by communism. For years, the Iron Curtain separated these two populations of red deer in Germany and what is now called the Czech Republic, back then it was Czechoslovakia. And there was a population of red deer that was divided by the Iron Curtain because there was literally a fence dividing this part of Germany and Czechoslovakia with guard towers on it. And the interesting thing is, that fence was dismantled in 1989, same time that the Berlin Wall fell. The, the government officials went and they totally dismantled that fence, tore down... Uh, the, the guard towers and everything. And that was in 1989. Well, in 2002, scientists made a discovery that the deer in Germany were not migrating to Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic. And the deer that were in the Czech Republic were not migrating to Germany. Same species of red deer. And matter of fact, they tracked some of the deer and they would travel 11,000 miles inside of Germany but would never cross the border into the Czech Republic, even though there was no physical barrier there. Matter of fact, some scientists did some more study, and they tracked one deer. They called the deer Aoria, and uh, they tracked this deer, uh, and they tracked this deer, and he went thousands of miles all around Germany and uh, never crossed the, the, the border. And two things made this very interesting. First of all, this deer was born 18 years after the Iron Curtain. And it wouldn't cross into 
Czech, uh, the Czech Republic. And not only that, the Czech Republic, after they dismantled all those fences and guard towers and everything, they turned it into a nature preserve. It was absolutely the most I- ideal, pristine place for deer to enjoy across the border. Yet they wouldn't go. And the scientist said something. He said, the wall in the head is still there. The wall in the head is still there. In the book of Acts, at this point in the story, what Deemer just read here a minute ago, we are about 17 years after Christ has ascended back to be with the Father. 17 years later now. And after Acts 1-8, where Jesus has told his people to go into uh, to spread the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then where? To the ends of the earth. And here we are 17 years later. And it's very interesting because there's a dividing wall mentioned in the passage of Scripture that Mark read earlier. It was this dividing wall between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. And the funny thing is, that dividing wall was abolished. It was obliterated. But it was obliterated at the cross. And the church is here 17 years later. God is invading Peter's life with this amazing vision and orchestrating some awesome events, some, some very important details to get the gospel across that barrier because the wall in the head is still there for Peter and for the rest of the Jerusalem church. So this passage is very, very important because it deals with the spread of the gospel into the Gentile world. And we are all very thankful that the gospel has spread to the Gentile world. At least I hope we are, because we are part of the Gentile world. So we're picking up where we left off last week, continuing through our series called He Reigns. This is a study of the book of Acts, verse by verse, through the book of Acts. And uh, last week I had a sermon prepared with three points, nice, good Baptist three-point sermon, and only got through two points. Uh, it took me 40 minutes to get through two points. And I said, all right, guys, I'm stopping right here, and we're going to pick it back up next week. So I want to remind you what the two points were last week, and then we're going to pick back up with point number three and finish it today. And you can add the time from last week's to this week's, and you can add those together and say that's how long the whole sermon was, okay? And then Deemer's going to continue next. So I'm just going to pass the baton to Deemer, and he's going to continue to go with this passage of, of Scripture. But um, last week... We talked about how God is sovereign in the spread of the gospel. First of all, let me bring up our title, if my clicker will work, and it's not, so you guys are going to have to do it back there. The dividing wall has been abolished. And really, this passage of Scripture covers everywhere from Acts 10, 1, all the way to eleven eighteen. It really goes all the way to that point. So it's a big story. It's very important. Luke takes 66 verses to deal with this, this situation. As a matter of fact, he repeats the centurion's um, story, the centurion's vision, he repeats it four times in this story. And, he, and Peter's vision is repeated three times. Now, Luke is a doctor, he's a historian, he's an excellent storyteller, and he doesn't repeat things just, just because. He has a purpose. This is a very important passage of Scripture. This is important to the transition of the gospel being a, a Jerusalem-centric, Jewish-only uh, focus, and the church being Jewish-only to it spreading into the rest of the world like God intended for it too. And this is part of that transition. And really from chapter 12 on, we really hear about the gospel expanding to the ends of the earth. The first thing I want us to see last week, number one, was that God is sovereign over the spread 
of the gospel. And remember, we talked about how God orchestrates all the events here. He got Peter to Joppa. Remember all the details getting Peter down to Joppa? The two healings he was involved in. He gets him to Joppa, and he gets him into the house of a guy named Simon the Tanner. Now, Simon was a tanner that has nothing to do with beds with lights that people lay in and change the color of their skin. He is that he deals with leather. He deals with hides of animals, okay? And he takes these hides of animals. That means he's, and, and creates leather products. To do that, he has to touch dead animals, which was very unacceptable in the Jewish culture. I remember I quoted one rabbi who said, tanners are absolutely necessary. We have to have them, but woe to him who's a tanner. That just sounds so a rabbi is so pharisaical, right? Woe to him who's a tanner. So, so tanners were looked down upon because they were unclean people. But Peter here is staying in the home of a tanner. And we see God tearing down barriers that would be standing in the way of the gospel spreading to everybody, regardless of occupation, regardless of race. And God has a man in mind. Remember, I talked about how God is sovereign over the gospel. It doesn't just go out and hope, oh wait, we hope that someone gets saved. God has specific people in mind. The Bible says he knew you from before the foundation of the world. If you're saved, God knew your name before the foundation of the world. He had drawn you to himself before the world was even laid. And so God is sovereign. He has a man in mind. He has a man by the name of Cornelius. And so God sends a, 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 a recipient, God has a recipient, and he sends a messenger who is Peter. But God also prepares Cornelius with a vision, and we saw also that man must respond as well. And Cornelius responds, and he does the right thing. He, he responds to God. He sends these men to Joppa to look for Peter as he was supposed to. And remember how good Cornelius was. In verse 2 of this chapter, we see he, he was a very devout man. His whole household was devout. He prayed a lot. He, he gave alms. He would fill up one of them baby bottles, all right? That was Cornelius. He was a good man. Yet God says, sin for Peter. And so we looked at the second point was this, that man is in desperate. Go back one point for me. All right, go back down one point for me. There we go. Man is in desperate need of the message of the gospel. Being an almgiver, being a prayer person of prayer, being a churchgoer isn't sufficient. If it was sufficient, the angel wouldn't have had him go sin for Peter. Angel would say, hey man, you got it going, dude. Just keep on, keep on, keeping on. You're doing good. But that's not what the angel said. Send for Simon Peter. Because he's got a message for you. Matter of fact, later, when, when this is being recounted to the Jerusalem church, Peter uh, even says that, the, that the, the centurion was told by the angel, send for someone who can tell you how to be saved. Send for, for Peter who will tell you how to be saved. So the almsgiving, all these things weren't sufficient because man is in desperate need of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's Romans 1.16. And Romans 10.13-15 through 15 says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him on whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So people need to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel in order to be saved. And then my third point was this, which we're going to focus on today. Nothing is to stand in the way of anyone hearing the gospel. Nothing is to stand in the way of anyone hearing the gospel. 
And I'm going to ask a favor real quick. Someone in the back, I'm, I'm, my throat's really dry. If y'all could get me just a little cup of water, that would be a huge help. Now, I've said this before. The gospel is exclusive in that only by the gospel message can you be saved. But it's universal because it's for all people. The gospel message is for all people. But it's exclusive because only through the gospel can you be saved. I, I used this illustration once. Let's say um, that this room is on fire. And, and, and I know that those doors back there are the only doors that are unlocked. This door is locked. Or maybe it just looks like a door and it's not a real door. And that door is locked. And that door is locked. And that door is locked. There is an exclusive way to get out of this room in order to be saved. And it's right there. It's exclusive. But my message is for everybody. Everybody. Listen, anyone. Anyone who goes through that door will be saved. And so people get mad and say, well, Christianity is just not tolerant. No, Christianity is an inclusive religion. The call is for everybody. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what the Bible says. But the problem is there's only one way. It's it's, It's very exclusive in that there's one way. And I would be doing you a disfavor if you were over here pushing on this door Say, well, I, I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way for me to say, okay, just do whatever you want. I'm not going to judge you. No, that door doesn't work. This is the way. And that's what the gospel message is. There's only one way. And so it's inclusive, but it's also exclusive as well. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Romans 10, 12. Revelation 5, 9. The second half of that verse says, And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I want you to remember those verses as we continue to look through the fact that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been destroyed. Peter needs to understand the extent of this. Peter needs to understand what God has actually done, the breadth of the gospel. They've not fully understood Acts 1.8. Remember I explained this last week. Acts 1.8 says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus, that was his commission to Peter and the other 120 disciples that started the church. And then in Acts 11.19 we read this. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. See, here was the church's problem. They understood Acts 1.8, but they thought they were just supposed to take the gospel to the Jews in the end of the earth. Because there were Jews everywhere. There were Jews in, in Rome. There were Jews all over the known world at that time. So I believe from that passage of Scripture is what they thought was that they were supposed to just take the gospel to Jews who were living in all these areas. And God has to show them, no, the gospel's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. Because the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been destroyed. So God does a providential, a supernatural work in Peter to enable him to grasp a more full and robust understanding of the extent of Christ's work on the cross. And it's been coming. 
It's been coming in Peter. Remember, we, we first, the first issue in the church was dealing with Hellenistic Jews. Those were Jews who grew up in the rest of the Greek-speaking world. They weren't Palestinian Jews. And their widows were not being treated the way that the, that the, that the widows from the homeland were being treated. And so that was the first barrier that had to come down. Wait a second. These Hellenistic Jews, they need to be treated well as, just as well as the other Jews here in the church. These widows. And so they elected seven men to be the first sort of prototype of deacons in the church. And these guys were all Hellenistic Jews, which is very wise by the leaders, the apostles. They, they elect these Hellenistic Jews. Then, then we see that the, the gospel begins to break out beyond Jerusalem after Stephen is... Um, is, is, is martyred, and the Samaritans hear the gospel. And who do they send for? Peter and John. Come down here. The Samaritans have heard the gospel as well. And Peter and John get there, and they lay their hands on them. They receive the Spirit. Well, at least the Samaritans were half-Jews. Okay, we've got Hellenistic Jews. Okay. All right, we've got Samaritans. We really don't like Samaritans, but at least they're half-Jews. And then God gets Peter down to Simon the Tanner's house. He's in the house of this unclean guy. And God's been working on him. He's getting him to the point and he, get, and he finishes it off. He finishes the work with this vision or this trance <clears throat> that Peter has. Acts 10.9. Let's pick it up there. Uh, I know Deemer's already read this, but let's pick up the passage in Acts 10.9. It says, The next day, as they were on their journey, this is, this is Cornelius' men, on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop at about the sixth hour. That's noon, okay? That's not the regular time for Jewish prayer. As a matter of fact, I think it's very interesting. There's an interesting detail here. Cornelius, it says he's praying at the third hour, which is the prescribed time for Jews to be praying. So Cornelius is trying to follow the law. He's doing everything he needs to do. He's trying to be a lawful man, and he's praying at the right time. Peter already is experiencing the Christian freedom that we all should have, and he's on the rooftop praying at noon. So I think that's another little interesting tidbit in this story. It says, um, about sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending. I think it's always interesting in like prophetic literature or in these visions, they'll, they'll use that word, something like. They can't explain it. So don't just assume there's a sheet. You know, that God's lowering a sheet. It was something like a sheet. He couldn't explain it. You see that in Daniel. You see it in Revelation. Daniel will say something like a wheel with something like eyes. It's because God is so creative that he can do things way outside of our imagination. We're, we're boxed in by what we've seen and experienced. But God can reveal things that we don't even understand. It looks like a sheet, but I don't know what it is. So that's what's happening here. Something like a sheet is being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds, clean and unclean, okay? All kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter, as any good, pious Jew would, Peter, he's appalled by this and said, by no means, Lord. Matter of fact, doesn't that sound like the old Peter? When Jesus said, you know, I'm going I'm to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be um, turned over to the, to the leaders and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die and I'll rise again in three days. And Peter says, by no means, Lord. So now Peter's kind of back to his old self here. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common. That means defiled or impure or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Now when a vision happens three times, that means it's set. He's telling Peter, this is set. This isn't just your imagination. And the thing was taken up to heaven at once. So here's the way I want to proceed this morning. I want to ask three and I want to ask four questions of this text. Four questions of the text. And as we answer those four questions, 
hopefully we'll have some points of application as we go through it. But the first question simply is this. Why Peter? What I mean by that is why did God choose to use Peter here? I think it's important. Why Peter? Why was Peter the one given the vision to take the gospel? Why was he the one chosen to take the gospel beyond that dividing wall which had already been obliterated? Why Peter? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, he's clearly the leader of the church at this point. He was the leader of the apostles. He's the leader of the, of the church. And God wants to providentially connect the Jerusalem Jewish church with the Gentile ex- expansion of the church. If there's no connection there, there will be problems down the road. Because people will be the Judaizers who will come later to the church and say, Hey, in order to be a real Christian, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to uh, f- abide by the food laws. You've got to do this, this, and this. God wants to providentially connect the Jewish church with the Gentile church through Peter. Because I thought, why didn't God just use Paul? Because from this point on, in Acts, Paul is the primary missionary to the the Gentiles. Why not give this vision to Paul? He didn't give the vision to Paul because it needed to be Peter who opened this door. It was very important because it can't be Paul's church over here and Peter's church over here. It's one body, one body of Christ. And so it's very, very important Peter opens the door. Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Spirit used Peter to open the doors at Pentecost. The Spirit used Peter to open the doors in Samaria. And the Spirit's going to use Peter now to open the doors as it spreads into the Gentile world. So that's the reason he used Peter. Question number two. What was the point of Peter's vision? What's the point here? What's the purpose? Why did God give him this vision? What does this strange vision mean? And it is strange. It's a strange vision. Peter himself in verse 17, it said he was inwardly perplexed. He was just just mind-boggling. Why? And so what's the point of this vision? This strange, challenging vision that God has given to Peter. A vision that really rocks his world as a Jew. Take and eat these unclean animals? you kidding me? And so what's the purpose? And and a a point of application here. When God shows you something in his word, he does not speak primarily through visions. He doesn't speak infallibly through visions. He speaks infallibly through his word. But God's word is living and active, as we saw in the video earlier. And when God's word shows you something that just rocks your world, makes you have a paradigm shift in the way you think, makes you have to transform the way you approach life, hey, guess what? He's working on you. Be receptive to that. Let him do a work in your life when he shows you something that just knocks you off your seat. And that's what's happening to Peter here. And so uh, let's talk about the meaning of this vision. I think the rest of the passage makes it clear. And there's really twofold. First of all, the, the first meaning of this passage is a negative meaning. And that is that the old covenant food laws have been fulfilled and are ended in Jesus. The old covenant food laws have been fulfilled and are ended in Jesus. They were prescribed by God in Leviticus chapter 11. I'll get to why they were prescribed in a little bit, but for now we need to know they are in God's word. They are part of his law. But in Jesus, the law has been fulfilled. It's been completed. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this, Do you think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, 
will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. And when was it all accomplished? It was all accomplished by the life of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The law was fulfilled. It was completed once for all. It is finished. Jesus kept the law and fulfilled the law perfectly, something no man, no matter how pious, no matter how religious he or she is, can accomplish, did accomplish before Jesus, or can accomplish since Jesus. No man is perfect, but Jesus was and is. And only God could perfectly keep God's law, which is why only Jesus could do it. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now I challenge any of you to read the Sermon on the Mount, which is where that verse is found, Matthew 5 through 7, and try to live that life perfectly. You won't make it past noon. You won't. But we are to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. Is Jesus giving us an impossible command? Certainly we are to strive for that and we are to be sanctified toward that end. But Jesus accomplished it. And therefore we are already declared righteous and perfect if we have Christ, if we belong to him. Because his righteousness has been imputed to us. And we are perfect then in God's eyes. And we are in a process of growing into that perfection that we already are. Ephesians 2.15, what Mark read earlier, it says this, talking about Jesus. By abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances, he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile, that's to make peace, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. What the law was, was a shadow of the things to come. It was a shadow of the reality of Christ. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered each year, make perfect those who draw near. The law cannot make you perfect. And then Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadows of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Which would you rather have, the substance or the shadow? If my wife is standing here and I see her shadow from the light, boy, the shadow might look good, but I want my wife. Do you want the substance or the shadow? And so Christ is the fulfillment. He is the substance. He is what the law pointed towards. He's God's law personified, perfect, and complete. So he has the authority to set aside the ceremonial and food laws, which is exactly what he did in Matthew seven 18. He'd already set aside the laws. I don't know where Peter was when Jesus said this, but here's what it says. And he said to them, then you are also with, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters into, not into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And then a parenthetical note here that Matthew put in. He says, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus had already declared all foods clean. And verse 20 continues. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From that, from that which is within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, enver, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, these evil things come from within 
And they defile a person. The new covenant is a different type of covenant. It's a heart covenant. It's a covenant where the heart work is done by God. It's a covenant where one experiences the circumcision of the heart. It's a covenant where the law is written on the heart. It's a covenant carried out by Christ through His Spirit in our heart. It is an already not yet done reality. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, therefore we are right with God. Yet, we are also in the process of being sanctified. We're becoming what we already are. It's a already not yet reality. So the food laws are no longer necessary. They're no longer necessary, which signals the second meaning of the, of the vision that Peter's had here. Which is the positive side. So the negative side of the meaning is that the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant Food laws have been set aside. They've been fulfilled in Jesus. And here's the positive side. Therefore, the people that those laws separated you from are no longer to be considered unclean and unacceptable. Therefore, the people that those laws separated you from are no longer to be considered unclean. No longer. So not only has the food law been abolished, the dividing wall has been Abolished by Jesus Christ. So basically what is happening here is that God is getting Peter's attention by showing that through the abolishment of the food laws, that the gospel is for all the Gentiles as well. But why the dietary laws? This brings me to my next question. Why the dietary laws? Because there's lots of Old Testament laws that were set aside. How about circumcision? Or the priesthood? Or the sacrificial systems? Why didn't he bring those to Peter's mind? Why the food laws? So that's my Question number three. What was God's purpose for drawing attention to the dietary laws and their abolishment? What was God's purpose for drawing attention to these dietary laws? Two things I want us to, to see. First, nothing expresses fellowship and unity like eating together. Right, Baptist? Nothing expresses unity and fellowship like eating together. Food is powerful. And we see it all throughout the scriptures, how powerful food is. Meals are very important things in scripture. And the dietary laws meant that when a, when a Gentile and a Jew were in the same vicinity together, they didn't even come close to eating together. The Gentiles were way over here eating, and the Jews were way over here eating. Matter of fact, Peter forgot this vision at one point in his life. In Galatians we read that Paul had to confront Peter to his face because he showed up where the Jewish um, believers were, and there were also Gentile believers, and he separated himself from the Gentiles to eat with the Jewish believers so that he wouldn't offend them. And Paul got in his face and said, What are you doing, Peter? Have you not forgotten those that's been abolished? And so, why? What's the purpose here? Well, food is so important. Okay? Food, when someone eats at your table, they're participating with your family. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6, there's an interesting story. There's a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. There's a biblical name we really don't use for our children. Go ahead, though. That would be a fun, that would be a fun uh, dedication to do, all right? Mephibosheth. Now, who is Mephibosheth? He is a crippled child of Saul's. Now, Saul was the king of Israel. Remember how Saul, God's spirit was with him and then left him, and, and Saul just kind of went crazy and, and, and lost the kingdom, really, and and his whole family was wiped out as a result of that, except one boy named Mephibosheth. And this actually was the grandson of Saul, because he was Jonathan, who was Saul's son's uh, son. And David thought all the descendants of Saul, all the descendants of Jonathan were dead. And when they found out Mephibosheth was alive, they, they brought him to David. 
And David fell on his face before him because he loved Jonathan so much. And he paid homage to him. And, and he said, behold, this is David, the king of Israel now, saying to this crippled young man named Mephibosheth, behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. You see, what used to happen back in those days, every descendant of the previous king was wiped out, no matter how young they were. Okay, he says, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore you to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. In other words, he says, I am adopting you into my family. Eat at my table. The table is important. The table is where the family comes together. The Jewish nation sat at the table for their most important holiday, the Passover. That was the table. It was important. And in the New Testament, what do you, you always hear Jesus eating with people. He's eating with all kinds of people. The Pharisees got mad at him because he was eating with, with the prostitutes and the sinners. And he's eating, he's fellowshipping with people. That the food was important. That's why the Pharisees were so mad. How can you fellowship with that vermin? That's what they were saying. The table is this important symbol in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what does Jesus ordain for the church to do in order to remember the cross? The Lord's Supper. So as Baptists, we have so much biblical warrant for eating. Let's just eat, guys. Eat as much as you want. Well, maybe not as much as you want, but let's just eat. It's fellowship. The table is very important here. So that's one of the reasons that, that God chooses to deal with, the, with these, these, these food laws. Because they were so symbolic of the division between Jews and Gentiles. And he wanted to see the church one. He wanted to see the church fellowship. He wanted to see unity. But secondly, we must understand what the original intent of the dietary laws was. And the ceremonial laws for that matter. And why they're no longer needed. Of course, one of the reasons for the dietary laws was health. As the people of Israel are journeying through the desert, health reasons. A lot of the ceremonial laws, same thing. Health reasons. I, I was reading with Olivia this week, her science book. Olivia's homeschooled, and, and we were reading, I was helping her read her science lesson, and we're reading about these worms that, that really gross, that get into people's systems and stuff, and they were talking about how in pork, they really they really are in, in, in whatever, pork meat. And so you really have to cook pork meat. And we were just getting, getting so grossed out. We're going, oh. And they're showing pictures of these flatworms and stuff. It was just really nasty. And, I, and, and so I got to thinking about this passage. And, and one of the reasons that God pre- prevented them from eating certain foods is because those foods tended to carry disease more if they weren't prepared right. And, of course, when you're out traveling through the desert, it's going to be hard to prepare food right anyway. And so he had laws to keep them for healthy. But that was only part of the reason. The main reason was separation. He wanted his people to be separate from the pagan nations that they were dispossessing. Now, doesn't that seem like God's contradicting himself? Wait a second here. We're in the New Testament. He says, I want you to send the gospel to all nations. And in the Old Testament, he's wanting to separate. Why? We have to understand the purpose of the separation. Because God wanted to show his glory through Israel being set apart. The word holy means set apart. And he wanted his people to be holy just as he was holy. And the law was given, the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, the feasts, the practices were all given and prescribed by God so that his people would be different from the pagan world. And they would be set apart and they would shine his glory. They were to be holy as he was holy. So when they looked at Israel, they were to see God and give glory to God and want the same God. And so there was a purpose. If they went into the land and started sacrificing their children like a lot of the people did in the land, 
They would be no different from the land. God would get no glory. And so he was setting them apart. He was making them holy. Leviticus 20, 23 says, And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make for yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which, which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. And their separation was to glorify God. Exodus 18.5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does a priest do? A priest intercedes between the sinner and God. And there was a priesthood in Israel, but he calls them a nation of priests. Why? Because they were to be God's representative to the rest of the world. They were to be holy as God was holy, and they were to be there for the rest of the world. It was a missionary enterprise. Israel was supposed to be a missionary endeavor. But they failed. They failed. Ezekiel 36, 21 says, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Israel did the opposite of what they were supposed to do. They profaned the name of the Lord among the nations. And therefore God judged them. They ultimately polluted themselves with idolatrous practices, but they kept the food laws, and the food laws therefore became devoid of any meaning. You can keep the food laws, and here's an application for us today, you can keep every type of religious ritual you want to, but it's devoid of meaning if you don't belong wholly to God and exalt and glorify His name. If you're in here singing, Come Thou Fount, and you go outside and that same mouth speaks curses words, then you are profaning God because you proclaim to know Him and to, and to be a representative for Him to the world, but instead you go out and do the opposite. You're profaning God. And so, the people of Israel had failed. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. The law had simply been exposed, simply exposed their sinfulness. It exposed that they had fallen short. It exposed that they needed a lawkeeper to redeem them. Ultimately, the lawgiver and the lawkeeper were one. God would be the just and the justifier. Jesus is the one who kept the law perfectly and thus abolished its demands on behalf of his people. The law had served its purpose, but now the law was completed by Christ, and in Christ, there, therefore, there's no longer a need for us to keep the law. He has done it for us. There's no longer a need for separation. Instead, there is inclusion for all who come to Christ and put their hope and put their faith in Him. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. For everyone who believes. So God uses this vision about food to help Peter see that all this was true and that the gospel was for all people and that the Gentiles are now included in God's family as part of God's special people. The Gentiles are now part of God's special race. The Gentiles are now part of God's family. Israel has now expanded to include Gentiles. 
Gentiles are now being grafted in. There is now one people of God, and because we have faith in one Savior, one law keeper, who's perfect. And Deemer's going to talk next week about oneness, I think, unless he changes his sermon next week. One people. Uh, Mark read Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 19 earlier. You stole my thunder. That's what I was going to read next. So y'all heard the passage. So I'm not going to read it right now, but you read in this passage that Jesus has abolished the dividing wall. And it says in here that we are now, he's reconciled us to God in one body through the cross, thereby separating the hostility. So Peter, pondering this, he begins to act. Go back to Acts chapter 10, verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, there were men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Peter, who was called, I mean, whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send to you, to send for you to come to his house and to hear what he has to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Now this is huge, okay? Peter invites them in to be his guests. That word there, his guests, it means in the Greek he invited them in to entertain them. In other words, he's being hospitable to them. It was okay. It wasn't against the law for a Jew to allow a Greek to stay in his house. But to be hospitable to them means you're eating with them. You're fellowshipping with them. So this is a huge step. But the next day, there's an even bigger step to take. It says the next day he rose and went with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Okay, this was very wise on Peter's part to take some witnesses with him. So that when he has to explain this to the Jerusalem church later, they can say what happened. Verse 24, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Hey guys, when God's doing a work in you, get everybody involved. Let your close friends and your relatives know, Jesus is doing something in my life. So take some application there from Cornelius' excitement about what's going on. Verse 25, when Peter entered, this is huge. The law, he's now breaking the law for the Jews to enter the, to cross the threshold. He's now entering Cornelius' home. That's what made him unclean. That would make him unclean by Jewish law. So when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. Remember two, three weeks ago and I showed you the statue of Peter in St. Peter's Basilica and I pointed out that his, his right toe was missing? His right toe's missing because people have kissed that toe for centuries. And the toe has worn off. If that statue could awake, it would say these words. Stand up! I'm just a man! Quit kissing my toe! It's gross! That's what it would say. He's just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. This is huge. Many persons gathered, a whole household, a bunch of people. You know, when the Ethiopian eunuch was saved, that was just kind of an exception. Okay, this guy, he's just traveling along, he gets saved, okay. But now there's a bunch of Gentiles here that God's about to burst forth with the gospel and with the Holy Spirit. 
And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me. God has shown me. That's important as well because who spoke to him to go down to the people? It was the Spirit. And if you think, if you don't believe in the Trinity, then you're disagreeing with this verse. God, the Spirit, spoke to him. God has spoken to me and shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God has shown me. God has opened his eyes. God has rearranged his thinking. God has given him a paradigm shift. Verse 29. So I was sent for. I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? I'm thinking, come on, Peter. Come on. Why do you think you're here? You are here to share the gospel. I think he's kind of looking for one little out. Maybe one last little moment. Maybe Cornelius just said, hey, I don't know. And that's kind of what Cornelius says. He says, you're the one with the message. Look at this. He says, Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house. And at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers um, have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind to come to me. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. And when he, Peter hears him say, all that you've been commanded by the Lord, what was the last command that, Jesus, that, that, that Peter heard from his Lord Jesus Christ in physical presence? The last command was Acts 1.8. The last command was this, to go into all nations and to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what he had been commanded to do. So Peter opened his mouth and said, he opened his mouth. Now that may sound redundant. He opened his mouth and said, I don't know if there's some people here that can talk with their mouth closed. But okay, he opened his mouth and said, oh, that's just a Greek colloquial phrase that means what he's about to say is of paramount importance. So he opened his mouth and said, he's about to share a huge message. And we'll save that for next week. All right? We'll save the rest of this passage for next week. But I have one fourth question. What's the big picture for us today? We're Gentiles, most of us here, probably. Gentiles. But we too are part of the Israel of God. We're Gentiles, but we've been, if you have trusted in Christ, you have been grafted in according to the scriptures. And we too are part of God's people. It isn't good to know that we don't have to eat certain foods or not eat certain foods or pray at certain times. Or wear certain clothes to be a people of God. Because Jesus has accomplished it once for all. It's done. It's finished. He kept the law on our behalf. And the second thing, big picture for us today. Do we really believe the gospel is for all people? Do we live that way? Do we urgently try to get the gospel message out to all people? Do we urgently try to break down walls and barriers? It's very comfortable to stay where we're at. Do we try to break down any form of partiality you might be experiencing, James 2.1, he says this, James getting on to the church, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring or fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, James knew this is later. There's all kinds of partiality in the church. And it still continues. And so, guard against it. 
I'm not accusing anyone here of partiality. What I'm saying is it's very easy. Because we're like those deer. There's still walls in our mind. Walls of separation. What barriers is God challenging you to bring down in your life? And if we know the gospel is the only thing that saves man. If we believe point number two from last week's sermon. If we know that the gospel is the only thing that saves man. Do we live that way? Are we driven towards evangelism? Are we driven towards an urgency that God, only the gospel can save my coworker? Only the gospel can save my relative. Are we driven by that sort of urgency? And do we believe that God is still preparing people around the world to hear his gospel just like he prepared Cornelius? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's preparing people? If God's been putting someone on your heart to share the gospel with, then pray that God will prepare that person to hear the gospel. I want to conclude with one Last story of a guy by the name of Wilfredo Garza. Wilfredo was, he was living the life of an illegal immigrant. For 35 years, he crossed the border, a fence. He crossed it for 35 years to find a place to work. And then he would cross back over to get the money to his family. For 35 years, he did this. And all during those 35 years, he was guilt-stricken. And he was scared to death. Finally, one day... He got the courage while he was in Texas to enter into an immigration office. And he enters into the immigration, I'm sorry, an an, an immigration attorney's office. Not the immigration office. The attorney is supposed to help him out. So he walks into the immigration attorney's office. And he's scared to death. And he tells him, what can I do to become a U.S. citizen? So the attorney says, well, let me do some work. And I'll get back with you. Well, he got a phone call from the attorney a little bit later, and he said, I need you to come into my office right away. Well, Wilfredo was scared. He didn't know what was going on. His attorney sounded kind of serious. Maybe this was a sting operation. Maybe he was going to get caught by, by the INS and taken back to Mexico. He'd already happened four times in his life. He'd been deported four times. This is a true story, by the way. And so he's scared, and he's nervous. And he goes in to his attorney's office, scared, not knowing what to do. But he takes that step of faith, and he walks into his attorney's office, and the attorney sits down and says, Well, Wilfredo, uh, I was getting all your paperwork together, and I found out that your father was born in Texas. Matter of fact, your grandfather had come into Texas years and years ago to do work as a migrant worker for a summer. And during that summer, your dad was born in Texas. He says, Therefore, you have a right to be an American citizen, nothing standing in the way. There was no wall for Wilfredo. Wilfredo had crossed the wall for 35 years, trying to do it on his own, trying to make it happen on his own. And all that time, he was already a citizen of the United States. You see, there's some of us here today that are playing the religious game. You're keeping rituals. You're keeping things, you're keeping the right kind of prayer schedule. Maybe you got a quiet time. And you think that's what your ticket is for. You, you, that's your ticket to heaven. That's a wall. And I don't know how long you've been doing it. 35 years, 5 years, 2 years, I don't care. The fact of the matter is that if you'll come and call on Jesus and place your hope in Him, guess what? The Bible says all who call on His name will be saved. That means... If you come to him and plead for him to be your Lord and Savior, that means that Jesus, 
has already paid the price for you. You are already a citizen of the kingdom of God. He has already kept the law for you in all your striving, in all your effort, was just foolishness. So now come to him and trust in him and know that you belong to the Israel of God. You belong to his people. He paid the price. You have a father. And you are part of his kingdom. So my challenge to all of you out there this morning is if you haven't placed your hope in Christ and your hope is in something else, don't let another minute go by. Turn to him today. And so as Mark leads us in a closing song, I'm going to pray. And we're here. This is the time of response for everyone. This is when we bring our, 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 our bottles up here, our offering, your prayer request. This is a time of response for everyone. God has spoken to every single person in here, and he wants everybody to respond. But if you're here this morning and you need to respond to the gospel message of Jesus Christ and place your hope in him, then I'll be standing right here on this front row. I'd be glad to come over and talk with you. Deemer would be happy to come over and pray with you as well. So right now, as Mark leads us in the song, let us close in prayer. Bow your heads, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I can call you my dad. You're my Abba Father. I praise you that you're my father. I don't have to climb over the wall. It's not even there. Oh, God, I thank you that when I was nine years old, I heard the gospel, probably for the hundredth time, I heard the gospel, and it made sense to me for the first time. I realized I need that. And I remember sitting and talking with a teacher on that day and then talking to my parents, and that next Sunday just making it public. Yes, Jesus is my king, and God is my father. So God, this morning, I pray there's anybody here that's foolishly striving in their own strength to get in, that they'd stop striving and instead start trusting, trusting in you alone. And God, this morning, if there's anything here in our hearts, any barriers in our life that's keeping us from being gospel witnesses, tear those down. And God, if there's anything that's keeping us from showing kindness to people that are different from us, tear those down. And so God, we sing to you now. And God, we respond to you now, however your spirit leads. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you please to stand, if you would, as Mark leads us in a closing song. Let's sing this song, Give Us Clean Hands, uh, knowing that God has made us clean and we can't have clean hands on our own. He has made us clean. We believed in him. Uh, he's made all our brothers and sisters clean. So we should not call um, what God has called clean common. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh, Lord, we cast down our idols. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another give us clean hands 
give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Oh God, let us be a generation that sees, seeks your face. Oh God, Jacob, oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks your face. Oh God of Jacob I just thank you that you've broken down the dividing wall of hostility, Lord. And I pray that you would show us how uh, we have put up walls in our own minds, Lord, walls that you have broken down. Lord, um, we recognize that it's an affront to you when we make walls on our own, Lord, when we go our own way. We want to follow your way. We recognize that your way is better. Your way is freer. Your way is truer. Let's sing. We bow our hearts. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees, O Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things, O Lord, we cast down our idols. Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. And let us not lift our souls to another. Oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks your face. Oh God of Jacob, oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, that seeks your face, oh God of Jacob. All right, you may be uh, maybe seated. Um, I don't really have a, a ton of announcements or anything like that. Just a reminder that um, uh, we're not doing our normal Bible studies uh, right after the service. It's Mother's Day, so uh, we're just encouraging folks to spend a little extra time with mom, being good to mom, taking mom out to eat. Dads, do the do the laundry today. Do the do the dishes. I'm hearing some laughs there. I'm absolutely serious. Just uh. Love on, love, love on, love on that mom in your household. So, um, uh, let me uh, let me pray for us, and then we've got a little video tribute uh, for mom. Father God, thank you so much for this morning and uh, the word that was delivered to us. And God, thank you so much that you show no partiality; that you see us all the same. You see us all as sinners who need to be saved from our sin. 
who need to be saved from wrath and judgment and hell. And Father, thank you that you sent one man, your son Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for sin so that all who may believe in him not perish, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you that you're building a community of people and the bond that we all share is the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for that. God, I want to pray for, um, for moms in this room. Um, Lord, thank you for, for moms. Thank you uh, for um, showing an aspect of yourself uh, in a way that you don't necessarily show through, through dads. Moms and dads are different, and, and, and moms are many times better at nurture, nurturing and, uh, and, and, and providing an uh, aspect of love that, um, that dads aren't as good at sometimes. And so thank you for uh, revealing yourself in that way. And God, I know that um, there are some here maybe that, that have moms that were not good moms. Uh, Lord, I pray that this would be a, a time that you would help anybody in that situation to have a heart of forgiveness and grace um, you know, towards that mom that may have fallen short. And if that mom is, is, is still around, maybe this would be a good day for, for that, that hurt son or daughter to maybe pick up the phone and, and say, Mom, no, I, I love you, and, uh, and I'm praying for you. And God, um, uh, I pray that um, you would go with us all as we leave this place today and help us to honor you, to love you, and to love one another. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now, a Mother's Day moment. You know, Mother's Day is that special day every year where we celebrate the women who brought us into the world. Uh, honey, it actually I, took 12 hours with you. Well, that's right, that's right. My mom was in labor for 12 hours. Thank you, Mom, for reminding me. This is the day that we appreciate all of the hard work and child-rearing years that our mothers... Honey, sit up and enunciate your sentences. And apparently, I need to sit up and... Enunciate my sentences. Thank you, Mother. A famous person once said, All that I am or hope to be, I owe to my mother. Now, for me... Now, who said that? I don't know who said it, Mom. Oh, I think it was hmm? JFK. I don't know. Maybe it was JFK. I don't know. I, I know I need to do this, though, right now. So. Don't you sass me. I'm not sassing you. Since moms are there from the beginning, it's really no coincidence that mama is typically a child's first I'm not sure that shirt's word. working. I like this shirt. Not dressy enough. It's pretty dressy. Well, put on what I bought you. I don't want to wear that. I gave it to you. I know you gave it to me. I don't want to wear it. You know, a mother's love is something that every child wants. I know I did, and I still do. That's oh, Douglas. Well, answer it, pumpkin. I'm filming. Hello? Uh-huh. Tell him hello. Oh, Mom says hi. Great. Don't care. Bye. Well, it seems that my mom's favorite son is going to be joining us for lunch. Now, honey, what? don't be rude. That's not rude. That's nice. If you can't say anything what? nice, don't say anything at all. Hmm, then I guess I won't say anything at all. Great, Douglas is here. Douglas? Daryl. Hey, is this for mom? Hey, can't you just go in the other room for five minutes? Mother's Day means Honey, a lot of... we do not live in a barn. What are you talking about? Who said anything about living in a barn? Oh, 
My favorite memory growing up would have to be when, when you I... went to bed in 10th grade? Hold on. Oh, this is overcast. Stop. No, this right. is my gift for mom, man. Stop. Well, you fell down. Stop it. So I hope that all you mothers out there have a happy Mother's Day. <laughs> love you, mom. I love you too. The art is missed.
Thank、you. 